Keith, please keep your Bibles open there at uh, Revelation chapter 6. This is a disturbing chapter. This is one of those chapters in the Bible that makes us feel uncomfortable. There's confronting images in it, uh, images of judgment, uh, of vengeance, of terror and of wrath. And if we find this chapter and vision just a little bit disturbing, it's going to continue ramping up. Uh, as we go through the book of Revelation, if you have read it before, like June's sponsor child, if you're a little bit familiar with it, you will know that there is, that there is more and more stuff that's going to come at us uh, that is disturbing. And it's these parts of Revelation that we might feel shaky on. Uh, what's it about? Why is it here? If I can't make sense of it, what am I to do with it? Does that make me more and more worried about what it talks about? Now, all along, I've been helping us to see the key for reading Revelation. The key is Jesus revealed on every page, on every chapter, in every paragraph. While we might see things that are disturbing, we might come across details that we feel a little bit shaky on, we need to keep asking the question, what is this showing me about Jesus? Jesus revealed. The book of Revelation is a revelation of the true Jesus more than it is anything else about end times or judgments. It is a revelation of the true Jesus. And almost all the time that's not meek and mild Jesus, not rainbows and fairy floss. This is Jesus as he truly is, the firstborn over all creation, the ruler over all kings, the one who we meet in Revelation chapter 1 who has the eyes of blazing fire with the white hair, the one who is the first and the last, the slain lamb who is on the throne in the centre of all heaven's worship, the one who has all purity, the one who has all power, the one who has all glory, the one who has all honour. And Revelation 6 continues the vision into heaven that keeps giving us this right perspective on who Jesus is, that all of life might be oriented round about him. Now, while it's somewhat confronting, while we come across hard and uncomfortable truths, while we come across some details that we're perhaps not able to pin down exactly what they mean... This is not here to make us anxious. This is not here to distract us or to make us afraid. Revelation, remember, is this warm pastoral letter to encourage and equip God's people for trusting and obeying Jesus in hard times. The time in which John lived, John who wrote this letter down, The time in which he lived was a disturbing time. The original recipients of this letter were living in disturbing times. John himself was a prisoner on the island of Patmos. He lived through a time when Christians were marginalised, when they were persecuted. John lived through the time of Emperor Nero. Do you know much about Nero? He was the guy who used Christians as patio heaters. 
The followers of Jesus that John was writing to experienced loss of jobs for following Jesus. They experienced poverty, they experienced abuse, they were misrepresented, misrepresented. they were accused of stuff, they were put in prison, they faced death. And in the midst of those disturbing times, Jesus gives John this vision to encourage and equip them to encourage and equip us for persevering with Jesus. In disturbing times, whether that be in the first century or the 21st century or any other century between when Jesus was raised up into heaven and when he returns again. Now in chapter 5 we were told of this important scroll, a scroll that contains God's promises for eternity, God's plans for eternity, uh, with his promises of salvation and judgment. And this scroll was seemingly impossible to open, it was sealed with seven seals. John, you'll remember in uh, chapter 5, was crying in distress that it couldn't be opened, but... There is one who can open it, the Lamb, Jesus. And in chapter 6, all these seals are opened one by one and as they're opened, the rousing worship of chapter 5 is replaced by terror. Out of the first four seals come four different coloured horses. Uh, The Old Testament background to this is Zechariah chapters 1 and 6. You might like to look them up later. These horses bring judgment on the earth. Uh, as we work through chapter 6, I'm going to give a brief description of what happens as each seal's opened, uh, then talk about when that happens, uh, and give a, an example of how we see it realised uh, round about us. Uh, opening of seal 1 in verses uh, 1 and 2, out of seal 1 comes a white horse. Uh, White here, not being white of purity, but a force of evil that looks pure. It has the appearance of purity, but it goes out in judgment. It has a power to uh, deceive, to conquer and to destroy. And what we see here and what Revelation will show us uh, quite a few times is that evil and satanic forces are real in heaven uh, and on earth. Uh, They can and they will cause harm. They will seek to deceive and have a power over us. Yet as we see these evil forces in heaven and on earth, they are always, this is what Revelation shows us, they are always under the rule of Jesus, the Lamb. And He always achieves His greater purposes through them. That is what is going on here with this uh, first seal and the white horse. A question to ask with the opening of each seal is when does this happen? It's an important question as we keep reading uh, through Revelation of the visions that we see into heaven, asking uh, when does this happen? Is this something that has happened in the past? Is this something that is happening in the present? Is this something that will happen in the future? Is it actually all three together at the same time? Is this literal? Is it figurative? Are we dealing with something that's chronological here? or something that's repeating. 
Uh, one of the uh, uh, concepts that uh, I want to put out there for us now, and we'll come back to it as, we, uh, as the visions here in Revelation become more and more complex for us, uh, think about a rugby league defensive line. A good rugby league defensive line keeps itself in a line across the field and it moves itself up and back down the field responding to the play that's going on round about it. And that happens with timelines in Revelation a little bit. Things are going forwards and sometimes things are going back down the field and then we're moving up the field again. It's not just one thing that's unravelled chronologically. Now here we want to ask the question, when does this happen, this opening of the first seal? And I'm convinced we're seeing the reality of seal one now. Not because of what I see round about us, but because of seeing what the Bible helps us to understand about this seal. It's it's not exactly now, as in 2016, but now, across an extended period, between the ascension of Jesus into heaven after his death and resurrection, between that time and his return in the future. That is the now that I'm talking about. See, the vision of chapters 4 and 5, with the slain lamb being worshipped on the throne in heaven, that is happening in heaven now. That has been realised at Jesus' death and his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. Jesus now is victorious over death. Jesus now is on the throne, worthy of all power and glory and honour and authority. And Jesus is on the throne and as he's on the throne, he opens the scroll of God's promises. Promises of salvation and promises of judgment. And seal one sees the evil forces at work in the world now, between Jesus' ascension and Jesus' return, these evil forces are at work in the world now to deceive and destroy. Let me give you one example of it. A sad example. In the 1980s, a religious cult leader in America believed that God had identified him as the Lamb of Revelation that he was the one who was worthy of opening the seal. He was the rider of the white horse. Uh, His name was David Koresh. And in 1993, after a 51-day standoff with the FBI, he and 79 of his devout followers, including 22 children, were killed in a shootout and a fire. This is just one sad example of what Jesus promises will happen. But knowing that he's the lamb on the throne, we will keep turning to him and trusting him. As the second seal is opened in verses 3 to 4, we see a fiery red horse whose rider turns peace to anarchy. People will kill one another. Again, this is evil, violence and conflict, yet it is under the rule of Jesus. When does it happen? Well, like seal one, this happens now, between Jesus' ascension and Jesus' return. Violence and conflict in the world is part of God's scroll of judgment of sin and salvation. 
Now, it's not hard to see how it is judgment, but how is it salvation? Well, because in the midst of it, God calls and enables those who belong to the Lamb to be peacemakers. We spent quite a bit of time last term uh, talking about how to live in conflicted relationships. In our personal relationships, as we grow in our dependence on Christ, as as the gospel takes deep, deep root in our lives, we are called and enabled to pursue peace and to leave vengeance to Jesus. Uh, on a national and, and global stage where we have opportunity, our policy and response will be shaped by the pursuit of peace. That is God's salvation. Again, possible because Jesus is the Lamb who is on the throne. Seal 3 is opened in verses 5 to 6 and there we see a black horse. Its rider is holding scales. And a voice says in verse 6, chapter 6, verse 6, Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages, and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. A strange little saying. But pretty much if you take the the values and the amounts and the quantities, what is happening here is there's a massively inflated price for the basic necessities, like wheat and barley. And luxury items like oil and wine, they are completely out out of reach. Now, if basic necessities are massively inflated in price and luxury items are out of reach, what's going to happen? Poverty. Poverty is the judgment that comes out of this seal. When? Like the other seals we've seen so far, it is now. Poverty is part of God's plans of judgment and salvation in the world. Uh, Poverty comes through economic mismanagement and abuse. Poverty comes through natural disasters like famines. Now, this is not to say that every instance where we see inflated prices and poverty is a specific judgment on those people. But it can be. Uh, Yet, as sad as it is, God does use this judgment for good. For those who are suffering poverty, they learn a dependence on God. And in a small way, find contentment in the little that they have. Uh, Poverty is for our good. Though we don't experience uh, the same kind of poverty that the children sponsored by compassion do. As we learn of the hardship that others face in uh, poverty, it helps us with our godliness. Uh, For example... Compassion raises our awareness of poverty round about the world that it might grow in us, not just an awareness, but God uses that to grow in us generous hearts, which is good for our godliness. As we're then called to uh, meet those needs, we then live on a little bit less. Our dependence on God has grown more and more as we make a commitment to give to others in poverty 
more and more, we are, we are taught and enabled to find our contentment in Christ. God uses poverty to judge the world and to grow his people. At the fourth seal, verses 7 to 8, we see a pale horse. And its rider is named Death, and Hades, the place of the dead, is following it. Where death will come by sword, death will come by famine, death will come by plague, death will come by wild animals. Did you hear about the woman over the weekend who was attacked by a wombat in the streets down in South Canberra? That's part of this. And it says here that death and Hades are given power over a fourth of the earth. This is not here given for us so that we might mark out 25% of the globe and see that that is where this game has happened. No, it's given us as a fourth because it's, it's limited. It's temporary. It's only a partial judgment. And so when is it? It, it, it is now. Now the world experiences a sad brokenness under God's measured judgment of sin. Seal number five, in verses nine to eleven, is not a judgment. But as this seal is opened, we get a vision of Christians who are persecuted. Let's read again from verse nine. When he, this is the Lamb, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. Where else so far have we seen the word slain? Who else is identified as slain in this vision into heaven? It's the Lamb. It's the Lamb. These are those who have their identity in the Lamb. They are like the Lamb. And they have been slain because of the Word of God, continuing on in verse 9, and the testimony they had maintained. And so in verse 10, they called out in a loud voice, How long, Sovereign Lord? holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. This is a vision of Christians who are persecuted for following Jesus. When is this happening? This is happening now. From Jesus' ascension in the past, through today, and until Jesus returns again. If we took a little bit of time, I'm sure we could find an example of somebody who has been persecuted like this in every century, from Jesus' ascension through to today. Every century. Do you reckon we could do every decade? Every year? Brothers and sisters cry out, How long, Sovereign Lord? The Christians in ancient Roman Asia that that John was writing to cried out, How long, Sovereign Lord? There are about 60,000 Christians in labour camps in North Korea crying out, How long? There are an unknown number of Christians hiding in Iraq today crying out, how long, Sovereign Lord? Many Christians spread across Africa 
living with physical scars, living with broken families, living with emotional and psychological scars for the harm that has been done to them because they belong to the slain lamb. And they cry out, How long, sovereign Lord? How long, holy and true Lord, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Well, the promise for these believers now is in verse 11. The vision continues, verse 11, Then each of them was given a white robe, a white robe of purity, of being accepted by Jesus, by being in a right relationship with God into eternity, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. And the greater promise for them and for us for the future is in the sixth seal, in verses 12 to 17. Verses 12 to 17 are a vision not of judgment now, but of future judgment, of final judgment when Jesus does return. Judgment that is prophesied in the Old Testament, say in Ezekiel chapter 14, you might like to look that up. Or in Joel chapter 2, a final judgment that is anticipated by Jesus in Matthew 24 before he went to the cross. It's described here for us in verses 12 to 14 uh, by disturbance, by great earthquakes. A blackened sun, a blood moon, falling of stars, rolling up of the sky, doing away with islands and mountains. An image of a reality that causes great distress for everyone. Verse 15. Then the kings of the earth, the princes... The generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave, and every free person hid in, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? A judgment of great distress when it is a judgment in the future god promises to sweep away all evil god doesn't sweep all evil under the carpet god has set a great day of punishment a great day of judgment a day of great distress a day when god will deal with all evil once for all and through it comes God's salvation of a new creation. That's still to come for us in Revelation because you'll notice seal 7 is not yet opened. We have to wait a couple more chapters for it. We'll get there. Feel free to read ahead. But let's come back to this big key for us. As we seek to understand why does this happen? Why is this here? Why is this written down? Why are these visions given? Well, to show us Jesus. 
We get this vision into heaven and we see that Jesus is at the centre of God's great plans of salvation and judgment. We get this vision into heaven so that we see that now Jesus holds all power and authority to be the one who unrolls God's um, judgment of evil and his promise of salvation. This perspective is given so that all who belong to Jesus are encouraged to trust him and obey him, even in hard times. You know, this is what was going on for the Christians in the first century in ancient Roman Asia. This is, this is what was going on for the Christians in the seven churches that we looked at in Revelation 2 and 3. I'm going to take you back there now just to put this into perspective. The church in Ephesus in chapter 2. The church in Ephesus was commended for not tolerating wickedness and those who might come and deceive them. So we read in chapter 2, verse 3, the commendation from Jesus, verse 3, You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name, and you have not grown weary. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you have found them to be false. The church in Smyrna endured poverty and slander with the promise of Jesus' reward. Chapter 2, verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days, a set limited time. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus promised judgment on Pergamum, Thyatira and Sardis if they went on loving evil. The Philadelphians were encouraged to patiently hang on like the slain ones who have gone before them. The Laodiceans, Jesus called on them to fear the terror of the final judgment more than they love their self-reliant luxury. These visions are given to give a perspective for those who belong to Jesus to be encouraged to trust him and obey him even in hard times. As you and I are faced with evil, this vision gives us the the assurance and the certainty that Jesus is on the throne, that Jesus is unrolling God's plans. This vision helps us to see and remember that Jesus hates evil even more than we do. And as evil causes us pain and misery in the world, whether it's come about because of things that we do or because of things that other people have done to us or against us or because just the world is broken, as much as evil causes pain and misery, we know that Jesus is capturing it to grow us to be more like him. He puts before us opportunities to meet evil and its effects with mercy and love and compassion. I'm going to finish for us this morning in 1 Peter chapter 4 because there uh, Peter gave the same encouragement to uh, believers in the last days. It gave them and it gives us a perspective and encouragement. I invite you now to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 
1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Hear these words as an encouragement to the Christians in the first century. To those in North Korea. To those in hiding in Iraq. To those who have been harmed and lost loved ones in Africa across the years. To children who know poverty but have been reached out to through compassion. These words of encouragement and perspective for us who face evil every day in things that have done to us, in things that have been done to us in the past, of the sadness and grief that we have as we just continue to look out on the world. Hear these words in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer... It should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. 